I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. What would happen if humanity ceased to exist? If everything we make and do every day came to an end? If alarms and morning coffee and traffic and noise and morning commutes, phones and emails and mundane meetings, the smell of a home-cooked meal, friends and the buzz of a busy pub, music and TV, theatre and film, and podcasts. I'm Connor Reed. if it all stopped with work. Well, assuming, of course, that the Earth itself has not been destroyed in this hypothetical apocalypse, the world would continue quite happily without us. People have long speculated about what would happen in the weeks, months, and years after the end of humanity. There are quite a lot of variables, of course, so a lot of it is just guesswork, but there's a fairly reasonable timeline of events. One of the first things to happen is that the world would get very dark. Without a steady supply of coal, power stations would quickly shut down and the lights would go out. No streetlights, no electricity in homes or offices or anywhere else. Animals with no humans around would suddenly lead very different lives. Pets and zoo animals who couldn't escape confinement would die of starvation, but the others would escape and go feral. Many farm animals too would die without humans, but many others would roam free or be preyed upon by newly wild packs of dogs and other animals. And all of these animals would have hugely expanded territories because the world's cities and towns are no longer out of bounds. At some point fairly early on, nuclear power stations without a supply of cold water would explode. Clouds of radioactive gas would spread across the world, not to mention the other toxic chemicals and gases that would eventually be released in the absence of humans to maintain where we store them. Huge numbers of plants and animals would die out, but eventually natural life would adapt and flourish. The world's oceans without fishing trawlers would be restocked with fish and other marine life. After just a few years, nature would begin to retake all our great cities. Roads and buildings would slowly become covered in vegetation. Many buildings might last hundreds of years, but most, without maintenance, would begin to collapse and disintegrate as the decades wore on. Barriers against flooding and other artificial means of keeping disaster at bay would no longer function. Cities would be flooded, destroyed by fire, battered by hurricanes, and never rebuilt. After only a century, the remains of humanity would be recognisable, but often only just. The world would be covered in rusted hunks of metal, the hardly recognisable remains of millions of cars. After just a few hundred years, almost everything humanity has created would be lost. Major roads and great walls, grand skyscrapers and ancient monuments, cultivated land and artificial waterways. Our presence on this planet would be all but lost, and Earth would go on without us. Now, I don't know how you feel about all of this, about the end of humanity, the flourishing of nature in our absence. I mean, there's an obvious perverse pleasure in seeing the world we have destroyed and continue to destroy, getting its revenge. There's a misanthropy in this type of speculation, what's sometimes called catastrophe-born. But there's also a humble recognition that ultimately we are, as humans, largely insignificant in the vast scale of things. Whatever we feel... We're definitely attracted to exploring the idea. 
the History Channel in the US made a documentary about this a while back, Life After People, the opening episode became the most watched show ever aired on the channel. There are thousands of videos and articles online exploring all of these ideas. And then there's the fiction. Post-apocalyptic fiction has been around for a long time. We'd like to imagine the end of the world, but it's quite hard to write a narrative with no people, so what we also like to do is to imagine what would happen if just a small number of people remained. Not quite the end of the world, but the end of the world as we know it. I love reading post-apocalyptic fiction. Cormac McCarthy's The Road, Colson Whitehead's Zone 1, Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven, and so many others. There's been a huge boom in post-apocalyptic fiction in the 21st century, and that's just the literature. Film adaptations of The Road or I Am Legend, the zombie apocalypses of The Walking Dead comic book series and the phenomenally popular TV show, even comedy series like The Last Man on Earth. And I got thinking, what is it exactly that draws me to these stories? Why do I enjoy reading them and watching them? I mean, some of them are pretty grim. So I thought I'd ask someone who knows quite a lot about this. Professor Heather Hicks is the author of the post-apocalyptic novel in the 21st century. That is a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I have to think about it for a second. Um, I mean, I think all the things that draw other people to them, which is a combination of the desire to think through all the different kinds of problems that could develop as a consequence of some of the major, major effects of modernity, like nuclear weaponry or, you know, pollution and, and believe, I guess, that there would be some way of surviving that. Professor Hicks is the chair of English and a professor of contemporary literature at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. So there's the element of, you know, problem solving that's in them that's fascinating. There is an adventure element in them that's just irrefutable that goes all the way back to Robinson Crusoe. Um, So they are exciting to read. And they do give you an occasion to really examine the way things work now, you know, and what you might wish to change or or not in the societies that we live in now. Um, so, and I've always loved science fiction. You know, I, I, I think that there is an appeal to um, just world building that's happening in these works, even if sometimes they get somewhat repetitive with that process, that, that trying to look forward into the future is just a kind of exciting imaginative process. So post-apocalyptic stories combine so many fascinating elements. There's the speculation about the future, the frequent sense of adventure and problem-solving in a new and dangerous world, the science-fictional world-building that appeal to our curiosity about the future of our species, and the profound, complex questions about us, about our relationship with our planet and, and with each other, and the huge societal issues that we face. When the world ends, it really focuses the mind. Adrian and I rode for the last time through the streets of London. They were grass-grown and desert. The open doors of the empty mansions creaked upon their hinges. Rank herbage and deforming dirt had swiftly accumulated on the steps of the houses. The voiceless steeples of the churches pierced the smokeless air. The churches were open, but no prayer was offered at the altars. Mildew and damp had already defaced their ornaments, 
birds and tame animals now homeless had built nests and made their lairs in consecrated spots. Think about how often you've watched or read this scene. It's the mystified Gillian Murphy wandering through a deserted London in 28 Days Later, a resolute Will Smith driving his car through an overgrown and abandoned New York in I Am Legend. The quote you just heard, however, is from quite a bit earlier, 1826 in fact. It's from Mary Shelley's The Last Man. Shelley is, of course, far better known as the creator of Frankenstein, but The Last Man is extremely important in the history of post-apocalyptic fiction. There's actually a whole kind of subgenre of last man stories dealing with the last remaining person on Earth. Shelley's book was not particularly well received at the time, and it's never really received the attention of Frankenstein. But then again, that's a pretty big ask when you publish one of the most important novels in the English language at the age of 20. And there's also the fact that The Last Man is not really a very good novel. It is so unnecessarily long and contains so many passages extolling the virtues of the characters who are these barely disguised versions of Lord Byron and Percy Shelley. It's a bit of a slog to get through, but as you read it, you do start to recognise all of these tropes and conventions of post-apocalyptic fiction that were beginning to take shape at this time. Before all of this, though, there was Robinson Crusoe. A lot of things have a habit of coming back to Robinson Crusoe, and in fact you can find out about all those things on the Words to That Effect episode on that very subject from season one. So, I mean, I think in the Western tradition, uh, many scholars see uh, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe as a, a precursor or pioneering text in this field, um, even though he obviously isn't actually experiencing the kind of um, global apocalypse that later works will look at the kind of problems that he faces in that text wind up getting used over and over again uh, in later work. So, and the kind of, you know, alienation or, or loneliness um, that he suffers gets borrowed over and over again in this form later on. Um, and then more generally, there are some early books that start to explore what it would mean if the world was collapsing in some way. The Last Man, an 1805 work by <clears throat> Jean-Baptiste Cousin de Granville, is one of the most important. It's also called The Last Man. Seemingly, everyone writing about the topic at this time called their work The Last Man. And it's an amazing book. I highly recommend it to anyone interested in this field. Um, he was actually a priest, and it does have a kind of overlay of, of religious concerns, but in a lot of ways, it's, it's really um, kind of an early instance of science fiction. It's got airships in it and uh, other kinds of technologies. Um, it's to some degree one of the first man-made uh, sort of disaster narratives. Um, it's imagining a, a world where overpopulation and overuse of resources has collapsed um, the population and they kind of an infertility plague has descended over the population. They can't reproduce anymore. And that's the premise of it. Um, that obviously kind of inspired uh, to one degree or another, a whole series of other narratives. Essentially, it's the last man narrative in the same way that Robinson Crusoe is the last man narrative. There were lots of other novels, as well as lots of poetry, imagining a disaster which left a single person alive in the world. 
The world was void, the populous and the powerful was a lump, seasonless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless, a lump of death, a chaos of hard clay. The rivers, lakes and oceans all stood still, and nothing stirred within their silent depths. Ships, sailorless, lay rotting in the sea, and their masts fell down piecemeal. As they dropped, they slept on the abyss without a surge. The waves were dead, the tides were in their grave. Although... One of the weird things about Last Man Narratives is there's almost never an actual last person. It's usually a person who feels very alone or... uh, is alone for a long time and then finds some other people or is with a lot of people for a long time and then becomes alone. Um, But it's a little bit of a misnomer. Now, I've been talking about last man novels, post-apocalyptic novels and so on without any real explanation or distinction. Firstly, the apocalypse is a biblical term from the book of Revelations and it has all of the associated imagery and religious faith that that entails. But You know, the way most people use it, it's really just a good word for a huge disaster which ends or almost ends the world. You could distinguish between stories about the time before an apocalypse or during one or after one, but they kind of all blur together, really. Most apocalyptic narratives have some kind of surviving voice that is describing the apocalypse that took place. In other words, there has to be someone who is recalling the apocalyptic events, which winds up creating a sort of post-apocalyptic element in those narratives and vice versa. Most post-apocalyptic narratives include a description of the apocalypse that took place. So the distinction between apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic, a single remaining person or a small community of people may not be too important. What is important, I think, though, is the nature of the apocalypse how the world ends. But before the world ends, I wanted to tell you about another podcast. As you maybe know, this podcast is part of the wonderful Headstuff Podcast Network, and there are lots of other shows on the network. So I just wanted to play you a quick trailer of one of our other shows. Did you ever dream of being a perfect Wakefield twin? Let us show you what a terrible idea that is. I'm Anna Carey. I'm Karen Moynihan. And on Double Love, we take you through the strange and terrifying world of classic 80s teen book series Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join us every second Thursday for a new episode. So, back to the end of the world then. There are lots of ways to end the world. Asteroid strike, nuclear war, horrific plague, something which is basically a plague but in supernatural form like zombies or vampires, a catastrophic natural disaster, alien invasion, or maybe we all go blind and weird carnivorous plants take over the world. In case you're wondering, that's not my imagination, that's the day of the Triffids. The way we end the world at any given time tends to reflect our preoccupations, as you might imagine. In the 19th century, it tended to be natural rather than human-made disasters. But during the Cold War, there were lots of work set in radioactive wastelands following nuclear war. As an awareness of climate change has grown, so too have post-apocalyptic stories set in future worlds ravaged by climate change. And for more on that, you can go listen to my climate change episode, part two of the double episode on utopias from last season. So many interconnections today. Then there's plague narratives, which have kind of always been around, as you might expect. And all of these different apocalypses can push a novel in a certain genre direction, too. 
Certain apocalypses might lend themselves to a more science-fictional treatment, like, say, an alien invasion, or perhaps something more realist set after a global pandemic, maybe, or the story might veer into horror with a plague of zombies. And there are certain things you tend to find in each type. The the plague narratives, you do get the... You often have like certain formulaic elements, like characters getting to move into really nice houses, or they get, they get to go into really nice restaurants and eat what's left over, you know. Or or the moment if they're you know very isolated characters and there's very few people left, where they realize they have enough supplies, they have more supplies than they could ever need, right? For for eternity, basically, because there's enough clothing and there's enough canned food, etc., um, to last into the into the distant future. Um, you know, the Cold War narratives tended to be formulaic in a really different way. They were terrified about, um, uh, you know, nuclear effects, things like radiation and mutation. And so that took, took you in a slightly different direction, more toward horror. It also obviously imagined just massive destruction of infrastructure so that everything was wiped up. And The Road is an interesting example of that. Cormac McCarthy's book, um, because he never really specifies what's happened in that narrative and different people have speculated, is it a asteroid strike? Is it some kind of nuclear war? Although there's no references to radiation in the book at all, Uh, but it's an example of the kind of effects that you got in earlier Cold War narratives too, where everything is destroyed. There's no, you know, living uh, matter really at all. Um, The landscape is just ash. And um, and that creates a certain set of problems, and that's where you tend to get these narratives about things like cannibalism, right? Because there's nothing left to eat, and they're trying to eat each other in that book. Um, I mean, and there, I'll also just add that there's a lot of formulaic elements in all of this work. The other thing to remember is that it's an important choice for the author, you know, which type of apocalypse you go with. Do you want your characters resorting to cannibalism and rejoicing when they find an unopened can of beans? Or have you other things you want to focus on? Plague narratives do present a little bit of a convenience for writers because um, they tend to leave the physical infrastructure intact. They tend to leave food supplies intact. And so for writers who decide to go that route, you find that they can, you don't have to have characters constantly looking for food, for example. To some extent, though, all apocalypses are the same. You know, I think that they to some degree, I'll tend to lead to the same fears about the collapse of all the institutions that organize society and the, the kinds of struggles for survival that people might have. And what about those institutions? The end of the world is a great time to reorganize society. So how subversive is post-apocalyptic literature? Or does it tend, by and large, to be conservative? Are hierarchies of race or gender questioned or undermined? Or do narratives of this type tend to just fall back on traditional values and ideologies? I don't know. I change my mind all the time about that. <laughs> I mean, I think it's both. It, it is a really revolutionary form. It can be because it, it takes away all of the things that are um, structuring a society and opens the door for there to be uh, radical change. And there have been some writers, um, some feminist writers, for example, who have really run with that and imagined future worlds that look really different as a consequence of a, of a societal collapse. On the other hand, some of these books almost seem to get caught in patterns or 
problems that have, you know, sort of beleaguered cultures forever and, and just sort of start rehearsing them in the same terms. And I guess I, one example of that is you often have the language in these narratives of an old world and a new world. And that almost immediately starts dragging up kinds of colonial traditions and colonial and post-colonial imagery where there are these kind of threatening others that uh, sort of man characters often have to battle in these narratives. And it starts to look very familiar. It starts to look like the heart of darkness. And obviously it very much depends who is writing the novel in question. It does break down to some degree along the lines of who's authored the book, whether it's a, a female writer, or an African-American writer, a white writer, although not always. But, um, you know, the apocalyptic event is definitely an occasion for there to be a reshuffling or a reorganization socially that can give um, people of color more power or women more power. I mean, one trope of this whole genre at this point is the sort of woman warrior figure that might go all the way back to Sarah Connor from the Terminator films. But, um, you know, there have been a lot of iterations of that kind of incredibly strong uh, female figure in the, in the narratives. But that doesn't, that doesn't preclude they're also in the same narratives being really conventional gender roles um, where things do revert back to a format where women are expected to be sort of doing domestic chores of one sort or another while men are out fighting or hunting. Um, so sometimes you do see that. And, and there haven't been a huge number of African-American writers, for example, writing in this field yet, although writer like Colson Whitehead, uh, who wrote Zone One, is, is an incredibly important kind of literary figure. And he, he chose not to even name the race of his main character in Zone One until the very end of that novel, which people have found a really interesting choice. Um, on the other hand, Octavia Butler, who's really famous for writing a couple of uh, post-apocalyptic narratives, The Parable of the Sower and The Parable of the Talents, you know, she's a writer who, first of all, was already anticipating climate change before a lot of other writers, uh, but also imagining the specific hardships that marginalized communities would experience. So she's, she's a writer who sort of really helps to, to suggest how striated the culture already is before an event and the way that that can affect people after an event. That said, she also does imagine the empowerment of her, of her main character um, in those narratives, who is a black woman. Right? So she, she both shows them as additionally victimized because they were already victimized, but also imagines that there can be this kind of upheaval in the power dynamics. Octavia Butler is going to be at the top of a lot of people's lists when it comes to fiction of this type. But what else should you be reading? I mean, I think that in the recent period, I've been really, imp I was really impressed by Oryx and Crake. It was one of those books that I read the first time and I didn't find it extremely compelling. And then every time I've read it since, and it's, I've read it many times, I'm more impressed by the kind of richness of that book and the different things that she's managing to do in that text. Um, everything from kind of economic critique and thinking about globalization to, you know, the really 
frank effort she makes in there to to think about human trafficking, um, you know, to to ideas about genetic engineering. I mean, there's just that's a really remarkable uh, work, I think. Um, and then the road, you know, it's kind of the inescapable book, just in terms of taking the genre almost as far as you can go in one direction. You know, it's just sort yeah. of like freebasing post-apocalyptic misery. Um, and you have to admire someone for being willing to be so unironic about it and, and so, uh, so intense. Yeah, The Road is such a relentlessly depressing book. It's so beautifully written, which kind of stops you from flinging it across the room in despair. But... Yeah, freebasing post-apocalyptic misery is a great description. I also read Station Eleven recently, which I really liked. Considerably less bleak, even though, you know, most of the world has been killed off in a horrific plague. There's plenty of violence and fear, but it's also about art and loss and memory. Claire V. Watkins, Gold Fame Citrus, that came out just a couple of years ago. Um, and that's one of the new cli-fi books. There have been a series of them set in California. Another one is The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalupi, which I'm not necessarily um, putting in the same category. But Gold Fame Citrus, I think, is an interesting example of a climate change novel that's very specific about its location in Southern California. It does try to resist a lot of the the kind of conventions of the genre um, and really creates, I think, a, a fascinating immersion in, the, in a future world that's been defined by, by drought. It can seem at times like the end of the world is not too far off. You've probably heard of the doomsday clock a way of representing how far off we are from a human-made disaster and global catastrophe. Various world events are examined and an estimate is made. As the hand gets closer to midnight, the end of the world gets nearer. It was first set in 1947 at seven minutes to midnight, and it's been moved forward and backwards 23 times since then, reflecting advances in nuclear technology, tensions around the Cold War, non-proliferation treaties, and other events. In 1991, with the fall of the Soviet Union, it was moved to its furthest ever point from midnight, 17 minutes. This century, it has mostly moved around between 5 and 7 minutes to midnight. Until most recently... In 2017, reflecting the denial of climate change by the Trump administration and others, modernization of nuclear weapons by the US and Russia and other factors, the clock was moved to two and a half minutes. Today, it's two minutes, the closest it's ever been to the end of the world. Post-apocalyptic literature, stories which allow us to imagine our future, to plan for a better world, to avoid a global catastrophe, are more important than ever. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the show, and I know you would, there are lots of very small things you could do. Most simply, just tell your friends, tweet about the show, stick a post on Facebook or Instagram, whatever is easiest. The show is on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at CEDREAD, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Or what you could do is click the share button on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now, and just send this episode to someone you think might like it. 
For the more enthusiastic listener, I have a Patreon account where you can make a small donation to help the show. And I should say this more, but thank you so much to everybody who has ever donated to the show. So that's Dennis and Miguel and Brian and Richard and Killian and Frederick and Carol and Charlotte and Ruth. Thank you. If you want to add your name to that list, then head to patreon.com slash WTTE or click the link on the WTTE website, which is WTTEpodcast.com. It's where you'll also find all of the links that I mentioned. It's got bios, it's got pictures, there are full transcripts for every episode and lots more. So that's at WTTEpodcast.com. Special thanks this week to my guest, Professor Heather Hicks. There's a link to buy her book and more information on her and her research at WTTEpodcast.com. The great music you heard this week was by Sasso. Links to their work are on the site too. Thanks also to Sarah for being the voice of Mary Shelley. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, so go check out all the great shows at headstuff.org. And that's it. I'll see you in two weeks. The novel itself, and that can be... Truffle, hold on one second. (laughs) (laughs) Steve? The dog just uh, offered a a woof for our podcast. That was classic. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.